Hi, I'm Paul Greenberg, author of the New York Times bestseller Four Fish and American Catch. And I'm Nick Mink, co-founder of the direct-to-consumer seafood company Sitka Salmon Shares. And what do we have in common, Paul? We like fish. That's right. And Paul and I have partnered to bring you an eight-episode series called Fish Talk. Each episode, Paul and I will trade off as hosts to take you on a journey from our coast to our kitchens so that we can better understand how fish get to our plates. So, Paul, what should listeners expect from upcoming episodes? Well, Nick, let's face it. For non-fishy people, fish are confusing. They're confusing to cook. They're confusing to clean. What's wild? What's farmed? All these different choices you have to make if you're going to eat fish in a responsible way. So on this podcast, we're going to talk to conservationists, scientists, chefs. At the end of each episode of Fish Talk, you will be a little less confused about fish. I couldn't agree more, Paul. All right, let's dive in. Nick Mink here with Fish Talk. For me and Paul, there's nothing quite like the sound of a big fish hitting the deck. Something like these two fishermen here landing a nice vermilion rockfish off the coast of Oregon. Nice. Oh. Woo! All right. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> That's definitely vermilion, guys. I can't say I was a great fisherman when I moved to Alaska and started Sitka Salmon Shares more than a decade ago. Sure, I'd fished plenty of times in the Midwest for things like panfish and bluegill. I'd even gone deep sea fishing a few times. But in Alaska, I feel like I became a fisherman. And no fish made me feel more of a fisherman than a fish people in the Pacific Northwest call rockfish. In reality, rockfish is the common name for dozens of different species of fish that live among, you guessed it, rocks. I loved and still love jigging these fish up from the bottom of the ocean floor. They have this really delicate flavor, nice flaky flesh, and they're perfect for just about anything that calls for cod. But for me, they're best in fish tacos. Little did I know it at the time, the fish that made me a fisherman was also one of the key drivers of sweeping reforms to fisheries management and conservation just a few decades before. These ubiquitous rockfish that I love to catch had become, well, a lot less ubiquitous on the West Coast, and often, as we'll find out, surrounded by controversy. The responses to the decline of the depletion of rockfish were complex, but one of the chief mechanisms that fisheries managers and marine policymakers used to protect these species were something called marine protected areas or marine reserves. In these protected areas, fishing would either be prevented or significantly curtailed, allowing fishing populations to rebound and critical habitat to be protected. In this episode of Fish Talk, me and Paul learn more about these areas and the fish they protect and the fisheries they support. And as we often do, we start our discussion in the kitchen with Oregon chef and cookbook author, Carista Bennett. And of course, what are we cooking today? My favorite fish, rockfish. We are preparing a rockfish with a blueberry ginger salsa. And rockfish is one of the most popular fish found off the coast of Oregon in the Pacific. It's a flaky, white, mild fish, easy to prepare. It's lean. It cooks quickly. And it just pairs well with the blueberry ginger salsa, which has fresh ginger and some fresh mint, some shallots, just very easy to make and a really nice, bright, fresh meal. Do you know what kind of rockfish you have? I have yellow eye rockfish. Is that what you got? No, I have black rockfish. Yep, that's what I have. 
It's interesting. I have to tell you, I have some ambivalence about yellow eye rockfish because if you study fisheries and look at West Coast fisheries, yellow eye is actually what they call a choke species, I believe. In some parts of its range, it's overfished. It's a very old, slow-growing rockfish. And there are some places where they have such a small quota of yellow eye that if the fleet hits their quota of yellow eye, they have to stop fishing all rockfish for fear of going over the yellow eye quota. This is Alaskan yellow eye, and I know that the rockfish stocks off Alaska are much more robust than they are off of the lower 48. So I suppose that's why I've gotten some yellow eye. And to me, it's also the most uh, flavorful of the rockfish. I just love, I, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, how do you balance the sustainability of an ingredient with the taste of the ingredient? And I think about it a lot with like king salmon, right? Which is a pretty heavily prosecuted fishery, but oh my gosh, they taste so good. I encourage you to do rockfish because the story today is about these marine protected areas that are off the coast of California, Oregon, and Washington that have been set aside in large part to preserve and conserve populations of rockfish. And they come with a little bit of controversy, but also seem to be pretty effective in being able to bring these really beautiful fish to our plates. So Paul, Carista, should we dive into this recipe? I think you should. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what are we making first? Okay. I think you should make the blueberry ginger salsa first. Okay. Because the longer that blueberry ginger salsa sits, all the flavors really meld well together. The salsa consists of uh, a pint of fresh blueberries, and you're going to want to coarsely chop those blueberries. Okay. So not an immersion blender, because I do have an immersion blender. No. (laughs) No. No. (laughs) No. We want this to be kind of a chunky salsa. We We want the texture, but we want them to be coarsely chopped so that they're going to soak up the shallot and the lemon juice and the mint and all the fresh flavor. I only asked because I was recently given an immersion blender for my birthday. And they're great. <laughs> and you know when you first get a new kitchen yeah, tool, yeah. you just want to do everything to it. It's like, I'll immersion blender this lime, I'll immersion <laughs> anything. Yeah, well, save that immersion blender for soups. We don't want to make a soup out of the blueberry salsa. Okay, so. excellent point, excellent point. We're right at the height of blueberry season, right? Yes, yes. We have a lot of blueberries right now, and this really works best with fresh blueberries. I wouldn't recommend frozen blueberries unless you saute them with the shallots. So I've gone ahead and chopped my blueberries here. What do we do next? Have you chopped your shallots? Nope. No. Oh, and and wait, before we do the shallot, I have a chefy qualm about shallots, which is that I feel like Every recipe we have gotten from a chef includes a shallot when it could be a red onion. Could you please make a case for the shallot that's <laughs> comprehensible to me and the home? The home. You chef? know, a shallot has a distinct flavor. It is not as spicy as a red onion. I do use red onion in ceviche and other salsas. But with the blueberries, I want something a little gentler. They also don't take up a lot of space. They're small, but they are so flavorful that you just don't need a lot of it. So it keeps your blueberry salsa from being so loaded with all of those onions. Right. Okay. You know, you've made a case for the shallot. I don't know. (laughs) I do love shallots. I know. Most chefs love shallots. (laughs) I think people just like to say the word shallot. It sounds fancy. It does sound fancy. If you're old enough to remember... The first Saturday Night Live, Dan Aykroyd used to do an imitation 
of Julia Child. <laughs> yeah, and he would say, oh, do you want it to this point? Chop the shallots. Yeah. And, you know, in Julia Child's mouth, shallot, it just sounds, it sounds so magical. <laughs> I have my shallot chopped. It's in the blueberries. And then what do we do next? You are going to grate fresh ginger. If you don't have a lemon zester to grate your ginger, you can just finely chop it. I like to freeze my ginger and then I just pull it out of the freezer and I grate it with a lemon zester. But if it's a fresh piece, I do peel it. You can peel it with a spoon or you can peel it with a peeler. And then you can finally mince it, finally chop it if you like. I do the frozen ginger thing because you don't want to be that person in the grocery store that like pulls off just the little knob that's big (laughs) enough, even though I'm sure all of us have done that. You don't want to be that person. And certainly you don't want to admit to it on a podcast. So we would never do that. But I throw mine in the freezer too. I think that works super well, but you don't even peel it. No, I just, I'll cut off a, a piece that might have a little freezer burn. And then I just grate it on a lemon zester and it's done. Okay. All right. So I've got my ginger in there. Walk us through the rest of this here. Okay. Then next you're going to need two tablespoons of chopped fresh mint. Okay. Plus a little bit more for garnish. That just kind of pulls everything together. Great. I've got my mint here. This is my first use of my garden vegetables on this podcast. Yes. I love fresh mint. This recipe came about because I had gone to a local farm and purchased way too many blueberries. And I had a mint bush that was totally out of control. And I thought, okay, blueberries, mint. I'm going to do something with this. All right. So I got my mint in the bowl. How do we finish off We give it a squeeze of fresh lemon. I I just half a medium lemon. Okay. Give it a little squeeze. Okay. And then you'll salt and pepper to taste. It doesn't need a lot of salt and pepper, but the black pepper is complementary to the blueberries. So I like a good little dose of pepper. I've got my salt and pepper. I think I'm done here. So I've got all the ingredients incorporated and you suggest this sits for a while? I do. Just so we're just going to let it sit. And that way the flavors have time to meld together and really bloom and get really delicious and complement each other. And then we'll make the rockfish. While we finish prepping our rockfish, let's find out more about the nuts and bolts of these marine protected areas from one of California's most prominent fishery scientists, Jen Cassell. Dr. Cassell runs a lab at the Marine Science Institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She spent much of her career studying and implementing marine protected areas. Dr. Cassell, welcome to Fish Talk. I am Jen Cassell, and I'm a research professor, and I'm a marine ecologist by training, and I work a lot on marine protected areas around the world and other issues in our nearshore systems as well. So marine protected areas, can you tell us a little bit more about them and how they emerged and why they came about? Sure. Well, marine protected areas, they're places in the ocean that are set aside to limit certain activities. Usually that's fishing activities. And even though here in the U.S., we might have started really thinking about them in the 80s and the 90s, this concept of setting aside places in the ocean to restrict harvest has been happening for really centuries all around the Pacific. So it's not a new concept at all. Okay. So explain the concept a little bit more. My background is actually in land use policy. So I've kind of almost thought of them as sort of like wilderness areas 
in the ocean. But can you just explain the mechanics of them, like exactly what they are? And then maybe any statistics that you have about like how much of the Pacific coast is set aside with these? How many are they? What size are they usually? That's a tough question, Nick, because they do vary a lot as they're implemented for a whole bunch of different reasons. So yeah, there can be so many different goals for marine protected areas. One of them might be like your analogy to parks or wilderness areas on land. But some of the other goals for these marine protected areas can be for augmenting fisheries on the outside, which is not really that analogous to a land park. Yeah. We don't we don't set parks so that the the mammals spill over the edges and can be hunted. <laughs> but sometimes we do that for marine protected areas. So I work primarily in California, and California underwent a huge process to put in a network of marine protected areas. So currently around 17% of the coastal waters in California are in some form of marine protected area. And as we move up the West Coast, we see another network in Oregon and also in Washington. And kind of the idea behind these is that we're going to set these areas aside and we're generally going to significantly limit fishing pressure or totally limit fishing pressure. Is that right? That's correct. So exactly how and why did these marine protected areas emerge as important tools for fisheries conservation and management on the West Coast? Well, I think it all really started with a recognition from some of the, you know, down here in California, it was some members of the public that our our ecosystems, our marine ecosystems looked like they were not in great shape. You know, down here in the Channel Islands, it was some of the older guys who were realizing the system didn't look like it used to look when they were in the water a long time ago. So there started with just sort of a movement. And here in California, it ultimately culminated in a piece of legislation that actually mandated that California take a look at its existing marine protected areas and organize them into a network and augment them, which resulted in this big network across California. But different states along the West Coast had different driving reasons for putting in place the marine protected areas. So these kind of conversations started in the 70s and 80s. And when did this enabling legislation happen, just for our own understanding? 1999. Okay. But fishermen and scuba divers and people who intimately knew the ocean, even because beyond marine ecologists like yourself, they began to start seeing some pretty significant changes off the coast of California in the 70s and 80s. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a fair statement. That's right. So, Jen, you're probably on the ground of these marine protected areas, and I assume you're probably in the water in and along these marine protected areas. What's it like to like scuba dive along the side of a marine protected area? You're right. I'm underwater a lot. In some of the marine protected areas, it's so dramatic, you know, almost when you've crossed the boundary. Here's an example, Nick. Marine protected areas where I worked in Southern California, especially, have really been beneficial for the lobster fisheries. And when we swim into the marine protected area in some of the places I go, we can just see lobsters, big ones. They are out and about. They're not even hiding, even during the day. It's crazy. And when we cross out, we don't see the lobsters. There's like this demarcating line between the marine protected area and the non-marine protected area that's even obvious to the general eye. 
Yes, but I don't want to give you the impression that that's every marine protected area for every species up and down the coast. But there are a few very clear examples. And lobsters in Southern California is one of them. And what's your favorite? I mean, is there a marine protected area that you work on specifically? Is there one that you know intimately? And maybe if you could describe that one in particular. Yeah, I do have a a favorite marine protected (laughs) area. And it's a place I've been working for a really long time. It's part of the Northern Channel Islands here in the Santa Barbara Channel. And the island is called Anacapa Island. Anacapa is really interesting because there are a couple different types of marine protected areas that allow different things. So one part of it is complete no-take, and it's actually been in place for over 40 years. And one part of it is also no-take, but went into place in 2003. And one part of it allows particular types of fishing, still pretty limited, mostly the take of lobster. And so we've been studying that particular marine protected area for over two decades at this point and have found a lot of really interesting results emerging. What's the three most interesting results from this area? Glad you asked. That's always a big question. I talk to a lot of fishermen and conservationists and environmentalists, and one of the big questions is, well, how effective are these marine protected areas in perpetuating fish stocks and actually giving fishermen more opportunities to fish, not less. Right. So let me unpack that. The interesting results that we've seen out of Anacapa, the first is that because it has that older marine protected area that predated a lot of the other MPAs in California, it was sort of a window to the expectations we might have for other places in California. So Anacapa was one of the first places where we saw that really simply the fish were bigger and they were more abundant, especially in that area of the MPA that was the oldest, the one that's over 40 years. So it seems like a simple result, but it's the first thing you need to do when you're looking at these things, just to see if the, what we call the biomass or the weight of fishes in that area is greater than the outside areas. So Using Anacapa as this kind of window to what might happen, we did find that result several years ago. There's one other very interesting result that we documented a couple years ago and published in a paper, and that was that the old part of the marine protected area, again, that part that was over 40 years, it appeared to resist the invasion of an invasive algae. So there was this invasive algae called sargassum, and it was taking over reefs in Southern California. So we asked the question, can an MPA actually resist an invasive species? And we did find the older part, the part of the MPA that was over 40 years, was not successfully invaded by the sargassum. And we think that was because in that place, There are these lush native kelp forests, and we think that native algae might have resisted the invasion. But there was more to this story, and that's that the area at Anacapa that's fished heavily also didn't have any sargassum, but it was from a different ecological mechanism. So unlike the lush, healthy, intact ecosystem in the old MPA, The fished areas are what we call an urchin barrens. They're in a really, uh, just covered in urchins, no native algae whatsoever. So those areas also didn't get invaded, but it's because the urchins were just mowing down any little algae that tried to settle. So really different mechanism and really different 
ecological states. We'd all say that the MPA with that lush, healthy kelp forests was a desirable system, whereas we'd say that the urchin barrens is an undesirable system, yet still didn't have the invasive, but for a different reason. So since their implementation, where do you think these marine protected areas have accomplished their goals? And where do you feel like there's still some work to do? Well, I think that it's clear that as an ecosystem protection device, they are meeting their goals. Marine protected area doesn't protect just one animal out of the habitat. It protects the whole ecosystem, including the habitat itself. So there's no other fisheries management tools we have that do that. Everything focuses on either a single species or a set of species, Hmm. right? Not the whole ecosystem. So I think clearly they are beneficial in biodiversity protection and and habitat protection and whole ecosystem protection. But what, I mean, challenges? Have they not lived up to their goals in some ways? Or what would you say is maybe the one or two disappointing things of these areas? Or are they one of the most important tools we have in conservation and management? Yeah, that's a great question. I can't really frame it as a disappointment, but I will say that as a scientist, one of the biggest challenges we have with the marine protected areas is trying to understand what the marine protected areas are doing for fisheries against a backdrop of huge environmental change right now. Hmm, Climate change is just causing our systems to change so dramatically and so quickly. And then we're trying to assess well, what's the MPA doing? And we have to sort of disentangle those two things. And it is really challenging. I know that you're focusing on fisheries management, but we're not going to have fish if the ocean keeps changing because of the bigger climate change issues. Yeah. And so the next big question for marine protected areas is, can they protect from some elements of climate change? Can they provide resilience or resistance? Can they protect our fish populations and our fisheries? And that is a huge area of research that a lot of MPA folks are you know, embarking on now. As we've learned here on Fish Talk, fisheries issues are multifaceted, perhaps none more so than these marine protected areas. While scientists like Dr. Cassell see one thing, fishermen might see another. My name is Mike Conroy. I am the executive director of the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations. We are the largest West Coast-based organization representing commercial fishing associations up and down the West Coast. I think at our last census, we had somewhere between seven and 800 vessels that fell under the umbrella of PCFFA. So... Tell us a little bit about your background as a fisherman. In high school, I started working on charter boats on weekends and then all summers and then realized that, hey, I kind of like this. I like being on the ocean. I like fishing. Did that throughout high school, did that during the summers during college, and then took a year or two off between college and law school. And that's when I ran charter boats and then went and did the law school thing, still fished a little bit on weekends when time permitted. And then went into practice, stepped away from fishing for a few years until there was one merger that just went horribly wrong and decided I need to go back fishing. And that's when I started commercial fishing. And God, I commercial fished for tunas, halibut, squid, sardines, mackerel. I've participated in a lot of different commercial fisheries that operate off the California coast, basically from central coast all the way down to the U.S.-Mexico border. What's the biggest thing you've seen change in fisheries in your, how long have you been fishing? 30 years, 40 years? I don't want to give away your age. Yeah, let's go with 30. 25. (laughs) 
What is the biggest thing that I've seen change in fisheries since then is I'm going to say the situational awareness of our fishermen. Back in the 80s, there was more of a catch what you can when you can thought process behind it. I think now as we're becoming more aware of the environment, we're definitely taking on a more stewardship role in wanting to be able to hand our fisheries off to whoever's next. With all of our fisheries here in California, for the most part, being limited entry now, you want to have that permit that you can transfer to somebody else to retain its value. And the only way that you can do that is by having a healthy and thriving fishery. So this is an episode on marine protected areas. You want to give us your take on these MPAs on the West Coast? What are they to you? That's a great question. What an MPA is has different meanings depending upon what your perspective is, right? For some, an MPA only fits areas where there is no extractive activity allowed. For others, I'm probably going to fall more into this latter category, time and area closures that are designed to protect a specific species or a stock. You look at the Pacific Leatherback Conservation Area. I would say that that would qualify as an MPA, or if you ban destructive practices to protect sensitive habitats. And for this, I'll use the example of the Canadian Endeavor Hydrothermal Vents MPA. You know, that's designed to conserve biological diversity, productivity, structural habitat, and ecosystem function of those vents. But both of those protected areas will allow, at all times, activities which don't undermine the specific purpose of those MPAs. We just closed, I think it's roughly 180,000 square miles to bottom trawling off the West Coast. To me, that would qualify as a protected area because you're protecting that sensitive habitat. I'm sure as you're conducting these conversations, you're going to get answers at all over the place. And now you have mine. So why are they important to fisheries conservation? I think clearly for some species, they are helpful. I can't sit here and say to you that Bottom-dwelling critters, crabs, lobsters, whatnot, don't benefit from MPAs. Market squid, for example, which the egg cases that they lay are attached to the seafloor, clearly there is some benefit to their productivity and, and their populations because of these closed areas. I've often wondered what the conservation benefit is to fin fish that are free to move in and out of conservation areas. I guess to the extent that it provides habitat and it provides spawning activities, that there could be some benefit from that. One of the long-term promises that we were told, or one of the long-term benefits of MPAs was going to be this quote-unquote spillover effect. But as a recent study just came out and showed, we're not seeing that. Describe spillover effect for our listeners. In essence, MPAs would result in increased populations of specific critters, fish, corals, kelp, crustaceans, within the boundaries of that MPA. And as populations increase within the boundaries of that MPA, such that you got to the carrying capacity of that area, then the excess population would spill over into areas that were outside of the MPAs, therefore providing a benefit to recreational, commercial, non-consumptive users of that space. But there was a study that came out on June 30th in conservation biology, and basically shows that, that MPAs can have conservation benefits, but the net effects both inside and outside of MPAs may be smaller and harder to detect than you might think. But to play devil's advocate, I've talked to scientists, conservationists, their perspective, right, is, look, things were horribly overfished on the West Coast in the 1990s. And instituting a lot of these marine protected areas 
has really created the opportunity for these groundfish populations to bounce back and for people like me or communities on the West Coast to now be eating West Coast groundfish in a way that they couldn't in the 1990s and 2000s. I would argue that it is the ratcheting down of harvest, the implementation of catch limits, the science-based management that set catch limits at acceptable biological levels. We have rockfish conservation areas. We have calcod conservation areas. We have yellow eye conservation areas all up and down the West Coast. And to the extent that those can be viewed as MPAs, even though harvest of other stocks are allowed, then yeah, I think you have to give credit to help rebuild the stocks to those conservation areas. Here we are today. I think there's only one of those ground fish stocks is still listed as overfished. And we're seeing the benefits with increased landings to the smaller ports. And for folks like you who are interested in eating local wild captured seafood from their local fishermen are having the ability to gain more access to that. You know, in terms of overfishing, I don't know that MPAs are the answer. Clearly, we've seen here on the West Coast, the ability of the Pacific Fishery Management Council and the states of of California, Oregon, and Washington to adopt and adapt regulations to rein in catch when stocks are down and to rein in destructive fishing practices that may be more indiscriminate than others. I think that's much more effective in combating overfishing. In, In terms of preventing habitat destruction, I think those are valuable and really good reasons why specific types of MPAs are to be created. But the one thing that we're increasingly focusing on in terms of fisheries management is adaptability and flexibility as we're seeing the ocean conditions change. So that's bringing up the question to some folks, hey, are fixed MPAs designed to protect one thing when that one thing might no longer reside in that area still the way to go about it? Are time and area closures or restrictions based upon when the stock or habitat that you're intending to protect is more likely to be in that area, are are those the better option? In what way are some of these marine protected areas more harmful to some of our West Coast fishermen than helpful? What we're seeing is gear compaction, where you have an MPA that's a no-take MPA. Obviously, you don't see fishing activity within the boundaries of that area. However, what you do see is a lot of activity in the boundaries of those MPAs. And is that having a negative impact? We don't know. For MPAs that were implemented and created that are really close to ports and harbors, it's a safety risk for the fishermen because they have to travel further to get to areas that are open. There are a a bunch of facets to this equation, and I think a lot of people in California still have kind of a sour taste in their mouth through the whole process because we were asked to come sit at a table, put a red dot in areas that were really important to us in terms of where our fishing activity took place, and a lot of those areas were what ended up being closed to us. Uh, Sour taste in their mouth. Can you expand upon that? The commercial fishermen, recreational fishermen I know are true conservationists. We understand that the rules that are in place, for the most part, are there for our benefit. No one has the desire to go out and catch the the last fish, and no one has the desire to do anything to have negative repercussions on the long-term viability of their professions. But when you're asked to participate in a process and you go into it as an honest broker and say, hey, these are areas that are important to us, so maybe if you look at areas around this, so you don't negatively impact our operations. And then the end result is the areas that you deem most important are those that were eventually 
put into an MPA. There's kind of that whole bait and switch, non-honest broker, lack of transparency. That's where the sour taste comes from. So specifically in the 90s, when these were being created, people got together, brought together stakeholders, fishermen. And what you feel like took place was fishermen got in there and were like, look, these are really important fishing areas. And some of the governmental or scientific actors who were there in those rooms actually were like, okay, those are the places we're going to keep off limits. And you guys kind of felt like, well, wait a minute, actually, those were our most productive and important fishing grounds, and we should be looking at the conservation of them a little bit differently. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I don't want to ascribe motivations to the ultimate decision makers, but it just struck us as sort of odd that we were asked to provide input, and then that input didn't really seem to matter. I think that's where the sour taste comes from. But I do want to say that since then, this was early 2000s, late 1990s, I give our state agencies credit for doing a lot of work to try to repair that relationship and have been working hard to rebuilding the trust that really is necessary for this management of our natural resources. So we have these marine protected areas. They're all over the West Coast, from Baja up to BC, and we have them in Alaska too. But what's your perspective on them from the context of primarily small boat, inshore fleet, community-based fleet, and, and the communities that they're a part of? Yeah, I think that's a great question, but I I think it's actually an important part of a larger question. We need to understand the impacts not only to fishermen and the local communities, but what are the impacts to the downstream businesses that are outside of the immediate community, the restaurants, the marine mechanics, the fuel dogs. We need to look at the impacts to the nation's food security. And one thing that's starting to be a, a focal conversation, which I appreciate, is, you know, what are the possible climate change implications If we become more reliant on seafood with a much higher carbon footprint to get to our markets, a more heavy reliance on imports, for example. I know that there are very few studies on the uh, carbon footprint to produce a pound of seafood, but there are some. And by and large, it is the most climate friendly protein source. So if we close off domestic production of that and increase reliance on imports, what is going to be the net climate effect of of MPAs? And I think that's a missing part of the conversation that needs to be considered because it's not a a zero-sum game. Before I introduce our next guest, here's a quick word from our sponsors. Ecosystems are complex. Buying responsibly caught seafood doesn't have to be. Sitka Salmon Shares delivers a monthly share of seafood to your door that's sourced with the health of our fisheries, oceans, and communities in mind. Learn more about their wild-caught Alaska seafood and the fishermen who caught it, and find expertly crafted recipes at SitkaSalmonShares.com. Just up the coast from Mike in California, The fishermen of Port Orford, Oregon, realized very early on that the creation of a marine reserve off their coast didn't have to be a zero-sum game. Where some fishermen found frustration, they saw an opportunity. Port Orford fleet member Aaron Longden was part of a group of fishermen that spearheaded Redfish Rocks Marine Reserve, just off the coast of Oregon. We're here with Aaron Longden of Port Orford Sustainable Seafood. And Aaron has a really unique background, not only as a fisherman, but as an activist and as a conservation-minded fisherman. So Aaron, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a commercial fisherman here in Port Orford. 
And now we have Port Orford Sustainable Seafood and we are serving Western Oregon. We started selling locally and started out doing the farmer's markets. And then we launched a CSF, a community supported fishery. And the future looks bright. This episode of Fish Talk is about marine protected areas and protected reserves. And just off the coast of Port Orford, Oregon, there is a really interesting one called Redfish Rocks Marine Protected Area. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. First of all, we're in Oregon, sandwiched between California and Washington on the coast. And California had done some pretty extensive marine reserve designation and marine protected area designation. And it was certainly going to move up the coastline. And we're in a blue state where we take care of business when it comes to conservation. So we knew it was going to happen. And we really wanted to have effect rather than to be affected. So we engaged. And that was certainly not the normal procedure amongst fishermen. We wanted to engage and make sure that the placement was practical, not only for sustainability of the resource, but also for the fishermen that depend on it. So talk a little bit about when did this happen? How did this happen? Because this this reserve has been in place for Almost 20 years now? Almost 10, but it took like 20 years. Okay. It was like 2002, 2003. Actually, right around 2000, there was a overfishing moratorium because of a couple different species of rockfish. Yellow eye rockfish and canary rockfish had been deemed as overfished, mostly by the trawl fishery, but also by hook and line, there was pressure. And some of these species, yellow eye in particular, they live to be 150 years old in some instances. So it wasn't anything that was just going to fix itself overnight. So as part of the solution to protect it, they made the rockfish conservation area all the way from Mexico to Canada from 100 fathoms to 30 fathoms. And then also came in with the process of placing marine reserves or a network of marine reserves. We happen to have some of the best high-relief habitat in the world. What's high-relief habitat? Why is that important for fish? Well, it's a lot of underwater pinnacles and boulders. So there's refuge. There's lots of places for fish to get in away and hide. And some fish only spawn on vertical faces. High-relief habitat is just very, very rough contour. And it's like anything, if you turn it on its side, you get twice as much space, right? Mm -hmm. It's rich. And when the current smokes, there's refuge for fish to get in and out of the current and find a good home to do what fish do. So in 2002, 2003, in response to the overfishing, this action to address that came moving up the coast. We anticipated it. So we boned up with academia and groups like Ecotrust and Surfrider Foundation, Pew Charitable Trust. And we started a nonprofit with a five fishermen board of directors. And we placed our own marine reserve here rather than have somebody do that for us. And that's Redfish Rocks Marine Reserve. It's small in relation to some other marine reserves up and down the coast. It's only 2.6 square miles, but it encompasses more high relief, more beneficial habitat to protect the species of fish that only have a very small range that they live in throughout their entire life. 
So we were able to protect a very, very rich system. And then out from that, we also designated a marine protected area. The marine reserve is zero impact, zero take. The marine protected area allows crabbing for Dungeness crab, and you control salmon over the top of it. But there's no hook and line fishing, recreational or commercial, for groundfish species. So there's minimal, minimal impact in that area. So altogether, it's about eight square miles. Okay. And these marine reserves and marine protected areas were kind of controversial in California, right? Oh, yeah. And why was that? Well, there was a lot of money behind it, and everybody's in a hurry to do it because it needed to be done. And there's a big disconnect between industry and action of those groups. And unless you can get stakeholders to buy in, you really can't get anywhere. So it was just contentious. Let's face it, commercial fishermen by nature are independent, and they keep to themselves. world starts getting them down. They jump in the boat and steam west. You know, they're not known for getting organized and calming down long enough to take in the information it needs to make an intelligent decision like this when it's concerning real estate that they're used to utilizing in their industry, right? They're giving something up forever, you know? So we sat down and we got all the boat owners and all the deckhands and everything. Everybody signed off on this. We drew lines on maps. There were several different ideas of where to place this. And everybody who had an idea defended that idea. And then as a board of directors for the nonprofit Port Overdose Research Team, we sat down and went through all that and ended up making the decision. And everybody signed off on it. And we didn't just lock up a marine reserve. We also invited OSU in, Oregon State University, one of the best marine programs in the country, to operate a field station here. So we wanted to make sure that it got studied. We didn't just want to arbitrarily lock up some fishing grounds and not learn anything from it. So we picked out where the Marine Reserve, and then we picked out another site the same size with very similar habitat that's kind of adjacent to it. And we go ahead and continue fishing effort there. So now we have them to compare to one another. And we conduct a lot of science. And the fishermen are bid and are chartered vessels to take the scientists down and perform whatever tasks are necessary to conduct the the science. And that was another good thing because we knew that when we locked up 20% of our nearshore fishery, which is basically habitat-wise what we did, that there was going to be a drop in potential income and we needed to somehow or another mitigate that. So you used working with scientists and all this amazing knowledge of oceans that fishermen have to be able to produce another income stream for your fleet members in Port Orford. Not only that, it also brought the buy-in. I mean, there's nothing worse than a bunch of fluty scientists that you don't have a relationship (laughs) with coming into your waters and telling you how it all goes down when you know intimately how it all goes down. Yeah. So that's good. Then we get to kind of participate in the science and also shape what are the questions, what can be the solutions, and have our experiential knowledge incorporated into that. So you're 10 years in now from the creation of this reserve and this protected area. And what have you seen on the ground? What are the changes, good and bad, with the creation of this reserve? Well, the biggest change, and it happened 10 years ago, is that an area that was fished and overfished probably because it was 
pretty close to the port. It was one of these places that because it was very convenient, it got a lot of pressure. Yeah. And so once that pressure ceased to exist, it just immediately started to affect the population dynamics in that area. Speak more about that. Do you see an immediate rebound of some of these fish? Well, there's annual population assessments that take place within the marine reserve, and there's definitely more fish, and they are growing to be bigger, more mature. So what's the boff thing, the big old fertile female? Mm -hmm. The bigger they get, the more larvae they release, and the better suited it is for survival because the older fish have bigger fat globules that are in with the larvae, which are their first meals once they emerge. And so it's really important to keep that diversity of old fish. I mean, if you keep hunting the fish down to where they don't get a chance to get old and those supreme genetics of the 150 year old fish aren't in the mix well then you're destined for declination yeah have you seen the fishing improve around this protected area like as a fisherman who's out there every day probably from spring to fall catching fish does this help your business i can say this i can say that it certainly has not hurt it we have a nearshore fishery that's a live fishery. We go out and catch these fish. We get a maximum bang for the buck selling live. It's just really comforting to know that those populations, we keep drilling on it and it just keeps replenishing. Hmm. Also, there's a few other things. You know, obviously the rockfish conservation area that went in all the way back in 2002 that goes from 30 fathoms which is the boundary, we can't fish beyond 30 fathoms. Yep. So it goes from where we can fish into a marine protected area that's miles. It goes from Canada to Mexico, and it, it yep. goes out to 100 fathoms, which here is about six miles offshore. So it's been acting as a proxy marine protected area because it isn't absolutely no fishing. There's some midwater trawl that takes place within that area, no bottom trawl no hooks on the bottom. It's protected. And those rockfish species are prolific and they're doing very well in there because these nearshore species that we're protecting in our inside our marine reserve are also protected within that region. So we have not only the marine reserve to look to for what's helping hold our fishery up, but also the designation of the rockfish conservation area. Yeah. So it's a remarkable story of the success of fishermen working together with scientists to ensure that these fisheries, particularly the West Coast rockfish fishery, which had some challenges in the 90s and early 2000s, can be used by uh, local fishermen into the future. Well, here's a direct result of actions taken. Canary rockfish, one of the species that was deemed overfished, we get 3,000 pounds a month now. Huh. So it rebuilt like 40 years in advance of what they had anticipated. Now, yellow eye rockfish, which was the other species that was deemed as overfished, it wasn't supposed to be rebuilt until 2084. And there's rumbling now that that could come to be within the next 10 years. Not a limited basis, right? It isn't going to go wide open again. But it's amazing what a rich ecosystem will do if we just back off a little bit. One of the tangible benefits of the rich ecosystems protected by these reserves are, of course, the rockfish that me and Paul are cooking with Carista. 
So let's hop back into the kitchen and finish up that recipe because I don't know about you, I sure am getting hungry. All right, so we've had our blueberry salsa marinating as we've listened to these amazing guests talk about marine protected areas and the fisheries they support. And here we are with rockfish. And Krista, do you actually have Port Orford Sustainable Seafood Rockfish? I do. I am a Port Orford Sustainable Seafood subscriber. I love their seafood. And you're working on a new book, right? I am. The Perfect Catch, 100 Seafood Recipes That Anyone Can Cook. Uh, it's going to be organized by level of skill. So we're going to have chapter that's easy for the novice seafood cook, a chapter that's called moderate and then advanced. Is this recipe from that new book or is this from your Oregon Farm to Table Cookbook? No, this is in my Oregon Farm Table Cookbook. I have this in the book with a couple of other seafood recipes to highlight our beautiful Pacific seafood here in Oregon. So with that, what do we do next? You always want to pat down the fish with a paper towel. And the reason is if your fish is too moist, it's just going to steam in the pan. And we want that fish to develop a little bit of a crust. That's actually a good fish tip. Yes. And then you're just going to season it with a little bit of salt and pepper. And when I'm pan cooking, especially rockfish or a fish that's a little more flaky, I actually like to add some flour to a bowl and then lightly just dredge the fillets through the flour and dust them off. And the reason for this is when you put it in the hot oil, it's going to develop a little bit of a crust so that when you flip it, it'll stay together. So how hot are we going to get our uh, pan here? It, you'll want to heat a 10 to 12 inch stainless steel or carbon steel cast iron, or if you like nonstick. Mm -hmm. The problem with nonstick, I know a lot of people use them for fish. They really shouldn't go over medium heat. It will ruin the nonstick. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, keep that in mind. But I like to add about two to three tablespoons of ghee or oil. Ghee is clarified butter. That is actually my favorite oil to prepare fish is the clarified butter or ghee. I think it adds flavor, but it also gives a nice sear and it can get really, really hot. The other things you can use are avocado oil or some people use safflower or sunflower oil. So we're going to add your pan over medium high heat and then you'll add your oil just enough to coat the bottom of the skillet. You don't want too much or it'll start smoking. Okay. Once that oil is hot and after you've dusted your fish, you'll add each fillet to your pan. And you can add about three to four nicely sized fillets to a 10 to 12 inch skillet. It's about a pound and a half, pound to a pound and a half will fit nicely. You just want them in there comfortably, not squished. They need some space around them. Now, my fillet is on the thick side. It's probably close to three quarters of an inch to an inch thick which is a thick rockfish fillet. Is it okay with the thickness that I've got? Oh yeah, that'll be totally fine. I cook my fish about eight to 10 minutes per inch of thickness. I do like my fish a tiny bit undercooked because when you take your fish off, it does finish cooking. You can always tell when your fish is done, it, especially rockfish becomes flaky. It'll tend to separate a little bit. The top puffs up nicely. It becomes opaque. And if for some reason you were to take your fish off too early, you can always put it back in a warm pan. It'll finish cooking. Now, here's a question. I sometimes mess up when I'm frying fish like this, where I turn it and the delicious crust that I'm hoping to achieve stays on the bottom of the pan and doesn't adhere to the fish. What have I done wrong in that case? You need your heat 
pretty hot, medium high, and you just need to let it sit. And don't move it. And what you do is you get your spatula and you put your fish spatula just a little bit underneath your fish and, and see if you can pull it off the pan. If you can't, it's not ready. It just needs uh, to sit there another 30 seconds or another minute. Yeah, I think I think if you're a futzer, if you're a kitchen futzer, this is where you could futz it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you just, you can't flip your fish too fast because it will leave all the crust on the bottom of your pan. And then there's so, really nothing to do to salvage it, right? I no, mean, you can, it's still good to eat, but. It's still good, but you can hide it with the blueberry salsa. You can oh, hide a lot. <laughs> there we go. That's actually the best tip. Is yep. any place that you have any issues, just straight blueberry salsa. Now, is it time to flip? Take a look. If it's starting to form a nice golden brown crust around the edges, and if it's lifting off nicely, then you can flip it. Oh my gosh, mine is incredible. This is the best crust I've ever gotten on a fish. Yay! Mine too. Oh, <laughs> great! Carista, you've given us crust confidence. Oh, <laughs> great! Oh my gosh, wait till you see. Look at that. Beautiful! Isn't that, isn't that incredible? That is gorgeous. If Nick's going to show you his, I'm going to show you mine. Can you see? see? Oh my gosh, perfect color. Excellent. 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 So Oregon seafood, talk about it. Oh, we love our fish here. We have such a nice selection of fish. And I love that all of our fisheries are so conscientious about not overfishing our waters. There are times when we just don't get certain kinds of fish here because they refuse to fish for it because it's being overfished. Because I like fish. I like to cook it. I like to eat it. I think it's a healthy protein, but I certainly want to eat it responsibly and make sure that the fish that I'm choosing to cook is sustainable. We get all sorts. We get black cod. We get all sorts of rockfish. Ling cod is another one of my favorites. And actually, this dish is really lovely also with ling cod. I love rockfish. I eat it all the time. I just think they taste really good. And this is just browning up so nicely. Beautiful. Now, mine is two, but I have a slight concern because it is a thick piece. I'm worried it may not cook to the center before it's nicely browned. So then just turn your heat to low and just let it hang out. And if it starts to get too dark, you can actually take that hot pan off the heat and just let it sit and cover it with a lid and just let it slowly finish cooking. Here, look at mine. Mine is a little bit easier. I had a thinner piece because it was a black rockfish. But Carista, can you give me some insight as to whether that looks about oh that is beautiful absolutely beautiful you did a great job thank you thank you and it's not like it's oh wow paul beautiful you know i couldn't let this aggression stand (laughs) oh this is beautiful very nice i'm impressed you guys I actually made one as well, and I've got one Oh, let's see what you got. Well, uh, mine is certainly not as beautiful as yours. I forgot to garnish. Oh, that looks good. Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty. Yeah. All right, so should we eat it? Let's do it. Bon appetit. Thank you. Bon appetit. (laughs) Mm. Mmm. Oh, that's nice. Lovely. Oh, my gosh. I would mandate that every bite of rockfish come with a bite of Mm. salsa. Absolutely. I really love the acidity of the blueberry and the, the kind of the gingery, mm-hmm. floral. A little spice, ginger. Mm. Mm-hmm. One thing I really love about 
fish is it pairs really well with fruit, Mm -hmm. just simple fruit, almost any fruit, and especially berries. It pairs really well with berries. It does. My parents, you know, they ate a lot of fish because their son's a fishmonger, and that's their go-to. It doesn't matter what fish it is, salmon, black cod, rockfish, halibut, and you just dump a jar of jam on it. (laughs) And it doesn't matter what jar of jam it is, if it's raspberry, blueberry, they eat a piece of fish with a jar of jam on it probably once a week, if not twice a week. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I love fish with marmalade. So in the new book, I have a harissa orange marmalade roasted salmon. And mm. it's really just a jar of marmalade with some harissa. <laughs> and it's in the easy section, obviously, but it's delicious. Mm. Oh, yeah, this, this is incredible. Carista, why do you think it's important to be able to enjoy fish from the Oregon coast? Why is this important, what we're doing here today? Oh, I think seafood is a gift. It is a gift to us as humans. It's a gift to our table. It brings people together. It keeps us healthy. It's easy to prepare. And it's just when you have a beautiful, fresh piece of fish that a fisherman has taken great care to source, and you prepare it lovingly with all of these beautiful fresh ingredients. I mean, what more do you need? It just, it just brings joy to your table. Joy to the table. What a wonderful way to end this week's Fish Talk. We look forward to you joining us next time for more fishy recipes and stories. See everybody again soon. Hey everyone, Paul here with a fish tip. You know, even the best managed wild fish on the planet are often still exposed to pollutants like mercury, PCBs, and heavy metals. But you can reduce your load when you eat fish. How? Well, most pollutants tend to accumulate in the red muscle tissue that's just under the skin of a fillet. If you take a sharp knife and make a shallow V-cut along that red muscle tissue, you'll end up with a cleaner tasting fillet that's better for you. Experience the real-life struggles of small-scale fishermen in the new documentary, Last Man Fishing. Narrated by best-selling author Mark Bittman, the film explores the growing tensions between corporate interests and small-scale fishermen. Featuring conservationist Carl Safina and author Paul Greenberg, Last Man Fishing calls to question the ethics of the seafood industry and its impact on fishermen and the ocean. Watch it now on iTunes, Apple TV, or YouTube. Learn more at lastmanfishing.com.